1: All right, all right, all right hello everybody and welcome back. This is In Liberty and Health episode number 275. Um getting back to foreign policy stuff, I've been a little bit away from it. Uh perhaps not as uh attentive to foreign policy stuff recently as as much as I should be. But um there's been a lot going on in Gaza, the Red Sea, and then um obviously we want to talk about the military industrial complex puppets and uh <clears throat> Apologies, some of the happenings with the GOP and all that kind of stuff. So um make sure you hit all the links below where you can find my guest, you could find myself, everything I got going on, the world's greatest supplements, Tiger Fitness, right there, and the world's best electrolytes, LMNT, and Fox and Sons Coffee. Make sure you use code Kyle at checkout for all that stuff. And uh yeah, let's get right into it. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on plague day.
2: <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So, if that's a problem, kiss
1: my ass. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Dave DeCamp, welcome back, man. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, you've kind of done a world tour since uh, the last show. Uh, from Ron Paul to Tim Cast, um... I feel like I'm missing a few others there probably a Russell Brand as well. Um how's everything going for you?
2: Uh things are good. I mean, things aren't good for the world. Um so <laughs> that usually means I'm I'm busy but my personal life is great. My kids are doing good. Wife's good. We live out here in paradise in the country. So I can't complain but um you know, there's just been when it comes to these escalations in the Middle East and everything, I mean, it's just really unbelievable what's happening right now
1: hmm. Yeah. And it really doesn't seem like there's a lot of an appetite for a uh, ceasefire amongst the elected officials. Um... <clears throat> Apologies. One thing that kind of gave me a little bit of hope was uh, when the whole Israel Gaza war first broke out. I remember some of my coworkers workers saying um, Joe Biden has been over to the border of Israel, but he's never been to the border of the United States. I'm like, well, it, it's not quite we shouldn't be doing any of this, but it, it's a better talking point that we should bomb them into the Stone Age. So <laughs> I, I guess you got to take progress where you can get it.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I mean, from my experience, like, of course, anybody all the Republicans in Congress, except with the one exception really of Thomas Massey, <laughs> right. You know, expected them to be all horrible on this, but I have noticed people like my friends and stuff that I know that are like kind of MAGA people yeah, have actually, you know, have a different attitude about this than I thought. And mm. I think it's because of Ukraine. I think that was very illuminating for them, all this foreign aid and, and stuff that, that the U S was sinking into that. So it's like, okay, then why are we supporting this one? Mm. Um, And especially people are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, they're not as kind of brainwashed to love Israel as much (laughs) as older uh, people. So, Mm. you know, but it has been pretty disheartening overall just because Mm. it did kind of feel like there was some progress going on with Republicans when when it came to Ukraine. But all of them are totally in the the tank for, for Israel.
1: Yeah, it really seems like uh, specifically Marjorie Taylor Greene, ever since the like the Chinese spy <laughs> balloon kind of popped, um, she's gone completely off the rails. Like, I, I can't even say I've paid attention to her at all. But, uh, you know, I know that she's even made videos saying like, oh, we shouldn't cut military spending at all. And uh, obviously, I, I'm pretty sure she's all in on Israel. And then even like the <laughs> Matt Gaetz was kind of a heartbreaker because I know you and I have both gone out of our way to praise him for his honesty. The heroic work in some of his bills that he's put forth um to see him you can almost see him have this cognitive dissonance when he speaks about giving aid to israel i remember when he was saying well we shouldn't condition aid on the people's goodwill for israel And like right when he said that it looked like there's a little bit of smoke coming out of his ears but then he finished the sentence and said oh we shouldn't condition the good will of the people on the aid to israel on assisting ukraine so it's it's like you said it's a sad trajectory
2: Yeah, Gates has been disappointing to see. I mean, again, I kind of figured that he was going to be bad on this, but he was really good for a while. You know, he was introducing all these bills to pull out of Syria, pull out of Somalia, and basically since this has all popped off and now the U.S. is entering another war in the Middle East, involved in another huge war, and and it looks like it's going to spiral even further. I mean, he's been silent on it, essentially. You know, he criticized a little bit the... Uh, airstrikes in Yemen, but he hasn't spoken out against any of the things that led to that. I mean, and, you know, you have all these troops in Iraq and Syria under like constant rocket attack. And, you know, this is the time to introduce the bill to leave Syria, to leave Iraq. I believe Rand Paul did did that. He's been pretty good. Rand Paul, he's I've heard him say some questionable things, but um oh, he voted for the thing. So Bernie Sanders put in a bill to the Senate and they voted on it yesterday And basically, it required the State Department to submit a report on whether or not Israel is committing human rights violations in Gaza Mm -hmm. within 30 days. And if they didn't submit that report, then aid to Israel would have to be frozen. And only 11 senators voted for it, but Rand Paul did. He was the only Republican. Because it would have frozen aid if they did find human rights violations, which I'm sure
1: there's no <laughs> it, it shortage would, of that. It would, yeah, it wouldn't take a lot of digging to find that one. Um, kind of to the point of Rand Paul, um, I really liked his uh, rebuke of Nikki Haley. Um, I know we were all kind of talking, saying, oh, no, he's probably just going to come out and endorse DeSantis, but uh, the whole never Nikki thing was definitely interesting. Um, he's kind of been questionable in the past because I know he supported the Iron Dome for Israel, and I'm pretty sure he's even came out and, like spoke about it on the floor and said like, hey, no, I support. Important Iron Dome for Israel. So, kind of seeing him flip flop on this specific issue. um At least this time, the flop is good. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember
2: earlier on in this thing, he was talking. I was on some news show about the aid to Israel, mm-hmm. and he said, like, the 14 billion that they're, they're the additional aid that they're going to give them. And he kind of said that he supported it, but he said uh, he didn't really be part of this big thing, you know, because mm-hmm. Biden asked for like 113 billion for all these different <laughs> wars. So that was his, you know, that's what he was against. But he said that, you know, the U.S. should still give the aid to Israel, which is pretty disappointing. But, you know, it's Rand Paul.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got to kind of be used to a uh, disappointment. Um, so I guess let's kind of dive into a little bit more with Gaza here. Um, the latest death toll to my understanding is like 24,000. I was just listening to Judge Knapp with our, our friend Kyle Anzalone, and he did absolutely fantastic on there. I didn't get a chance to message him and let him know that like he's doing an excellent job on there. And I see the show's getting a lot of traction, so that's really really good for him. But, um, if I remember correctly, 24,000, I'm guessing. Um, and you can correct me here and obviously let me know what else is going on. 24,000 dead and then probably eight to 10,000 buried under the rubble as an estimate?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's probably about right. I know the 24,000 dead uh, is the number coming from the, the Gaza Health Ministry, and that doesn't take into account the people that are missing. I haven't seen a number on that. I remember a few weeks ago they said 7,000 people were missing okay. and presumed to be under the rubble. So it sure. probably is somewhere somewhere around there. Um, and then for people who aren't aware, you know, the death toll uh, was initially like kind of questioned by Biden. He said that he didn't believe the numbers coming from Gaza's health ministry. And then after that, there was kind of all this like the U.N. and all these aid groups that operate in Gaza basically said, you know, these these are known as reliable numbers. If you look back right. at the previous Gaza wars, their numbers were always accurate. They even aligned with Israeli estimates. And then um, the State Department actually said, Oh, yeah, we actually think the numbers probably higher realistically. Mm-hmm. It's probably much higher. Uh so and, and Israeli officials have said to the media that, yeah, the, the numbers are probably accurate. Cause a lot of people who don't really pay attention say, Oh, where'd you get that number from? Oh, it's from you know, Hamas. From and, Hamas. Yeah, they just aren't aware that there is a track record here. And if you look at the destruction in Gaza, this is not uh an unfathomable number i mean they're, they're they've are they destroyed the place i mean this is the heaviest basically modern i shouldn't say modern because you could look back at world war ii and korea those are still i guess kind of considered modern war because that's when air power really became a, such a big part of it but um you know in recent years like this century this is definitely the heaviest bombing campaign of this century
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did a debate, and I know that you kind of made the mistake of doing the same thing. Um, I, I definitely don't think I'm cut out for it. Um, I think you probably did better than me. But uh, <laughs> where uh my my opponent had said that oh well, those are Hamas numbers, and I don't trust them. I'm like okay, but like the State Department and Israel both are saying that like, yeah, these numbers are accurate. So you don't believe them because because they're because they're coming from Hamas, but you believe the Israeli government is doing the right thing and you morally support them, but you don't believe that they're right on this. Like there, there's a whole just space here that I don't quite fully understand.
2: Yeah. It's kind of just something easy for people to do. That's what Biden did. You know, they're like right. at that time it was about 10,000 and he's like, what do you think? 10,000 Palestinians killed, you know, a few thousand are children. And you know, so the reaction is, Oh, well we, we can't trust those numbers, but
1: mm-hmm. You know,
2: that's just the deflection. Um, and, you know, maybe they're a little inaccurate, but it's the best sense. I, I don't think I think if, like I said, they're, they're probably a low estimate, but mm-hmm. you got to have some sense of the casualties. Although Ukraine is a very strange situation because neither side has been putting out their casualties. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, you could have a rough estimate, but really n- nothing. Uh, nothing's really narrowed down there, which is very strange. It's
1: like a, just a weird propaganda thing. Right. So what do you think the chances are of this spreading to a wider war? I know a lot of people have talked about this. Uh, my rate of the situation is I don't think it's too likely unless Israel really starts to get carried away and starts doing a lot more bombing in Lebanon and a lot more bombing in Syria and, you know, targeting R- Iran specifically. Um, but you would be much more well read on that to me. So what do you think the chances are of Israel kind of going a little bit more postal than they already have gone?
2: I mean, it seems like they they're... they're still ramping things up um so this was something that i missed yesterday that we just had uh jason ditz who's another writer for antiwar.com he just wrote that up Mm -hmm. that yesterday israel launched these like huge strikes in lebanon they said it was like the heaviest yet and Mm -hmm. one israeli uh, uh military i forget he was a commander or some kind of officer said that israeli special operations went into lebanon So there's some sort of ground operation, too. So that's a pretty huge escalation. That's not really confirmed, but that's kind of what it sounded like he was saying.
1: Well, Israel depends on a lot of air superiority. Like, they don't do a lot of on-the-ground operations, specifically in Lebanon. Wasn't it um, when they went in there in 2006, they kind of got their asses handed to them on their last ground operation there?
2: Yeah, yeah, they had a tough time. And they had a tough time in Gaza in 2014, and they're having a tough time. Now it seems like I know that they just like pulled some troops out of North Gaza saying, oh, we we took out their leader, you know, Hamas leadership. And now there's all these yeah. rocket attacks coming from North Gaza. So they didn't, you know, uh, it's really that's another thing that's hard to know is like the number of Hamas guys that have been killed and, and the number sure. of Israeli soldiers. They say like almost 200 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the ground fighting. Mm-hmm. But then there's these reports in Israeli media that say like 5000 Israeli troops have been disabled. Oh, wow. Yeah. not killed disabled but like if that's the ratio like if 5000 are disabled then like just that's that's more more have to be getting killed but but I don't know but mm-hmm. yeah so I think the risk is pretty is really high I mean it kind of already has because the US is bombing Yemen now they've mm-hmm. bombed Yemen 3 times since last Friday and the Houthis cuz the Houthis started attacking shipping in the Red Sea in protest mm-hmm. of what's happening in Gaza I'm glad you're getting this <laughs> yeah so at first they were targeting they said they were targeting Israeli-linked shipping. And for the most part, it seemed like they were. It seemed like in some cases they targeted ships that weren't linked to Israel. But that's what they were targeting for the most part. So the U.S. and the U.K. bombed Yemen this past Friday, targeted the Houthis. And then the Houthis just started doing more attacks. And they said, now we're going to attack American and British shipping interests. And just today, for a second time, the Houthis hit an American owned uh, cargo ship so it's just a mess like after those airstrikes the idea was to protect shipping in the region all these companies are suspending shipping it's much the whole situation is much more volatile now um and the u.s has bombed them again twice more since then and it's just insane and like this is all just to protect israel just so israel can keep doing what it's doing in gaza because the houthis keep saying if that stops we'll stop but Biden doesn't want to cut Netanyahu off instead. He mm. just wants war, I guess. And it's, uh, it's just really uh, crazy because the Houthis, if you know anything about them, they just faced this ruthless bombing campaign from 2015 to 2022. The U.S. backed mm. this Saudi and UAE coalition against the Houthis. And it was just a brutal bombing campaign with a blockade. And the Houthis just got stronger and became more of like a efficient fighting force and got missile and drone capabilities that they didn't have before. So if they think they could just launch some limited airstrikes in Yemen and that would stop the Houthis, I mean, it's just not, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you just think they're stupid or incompetent or if they're just doing this purposely, if they just want escalation.
1: But it's just crazy. Well, it seems like the MO of the Biden administration is essentially um, no talks, no diplomacy escalation um, at all times. And this doesn't seem to be any different. Um, People had kind of been saying that, like, okay, well, now we're going to war with Yemen. But um, my understanding is that essentially there was a ceasefire um, that started in January of 2022 in Yemen with the Saudis, correct?
2: Yeah, it started in April 2022.
1: Okay, and then we've been pretty much consistently either arming the Saudis or directly bombing Yemen since 2015 when Obama said we would placate the Saudis, right?
2: Yeah, so the U.S., um, you know, there was a drone war in Yemen against Al-Qaeda that was pretty mm-hmm. pretty bad. Uh, a lot of civilians killed in that. And then actually the Houthis, um, so they, the area of Yemen that they control is, is what used to be North Yemen. Uh, Yemen used to be North and South Yemen, before they became one country in 1990 mm-hmm. and it's important this is an important point because the, they the, in the western media they always call them the houthi rebels but they actually control the they've controlled the capital Sanaa and and the area of yemen where most people live it's like 80 percent of the population live in the area that they control and this has been like this for 10 years now so mm-hmm. um they're not just rebels you know they're they're a government in in this area um so They were actually a partner of the U.S. in 2015 against Al-Qaeda. The U.S. started sharing intelligence with them against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. A few months after that, the Saudis and the UAE and some other Gulf countries intervened in Yemen. They wanted to reinstate the Hadi, the government uh, that the Houthis drove out, kicked out of Sana'a. Mm-hmm. That was based in Saudi Arabia at the time. They're still based in Saudi Arabia because they didn't make any progress in that goal mm-hmm. after seven years of, of, you know, full blown war. Um, and uh, so now, so then they reached that ceasefire. And one of the reasons why they, they agreed to a ceasefire, the Saudis sued for peace was because the Houthis started hitting their oil fields and they were mm-hmm. getting really good at that. And, you know, they can't have that. Right. So. What's really crazy is that because Yemen was a big issue for me. It was one of the things that got me writing because um, it was so horrific. Right. You know, they bombed food supplies, water treatment plants, you know, sewage facilities, like just civilian infrastructure and caused starvation and disease. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I always it always sticks with me that they bombed fishing boats and they bombed farms and like livestock and sheep and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, it's like on par with what Israel's doing in Gaza, but anyway, so since 2020, April, 2022, they've had the ceasefire. There's been some fighting on the ground, but the Saudis and the Houthis haven't been, there's been no Saudi airstrikes in Yemen and no Houthi attacks in Saudi Arabia. And what's really incredible is that after Biden bombed Yemen, the Saudis said, you know, urged the U S to show restraint in Yemen because for years, it was the Saudis basically because, because the U S came under, there was a lot of pressure uh, from within in the U S there was a war powers resolution passed in 2018. I think was it 2018 mm-hmm. to end U S or maybe it was 2019 to end U S support for this horrific war. And mm-hmm. Trump vetoed that. Right. Um, so there was a lot of pressure and that actually just the fact that Congress passed that the UAE like pulled its ground forces out of Yemen. They were like, Oh, we're losing Congress. We got to get out of here. And, and, so there was like, just pressure and and stuff, and and now and it was the Saudis who were like, "Come on, give us more bomb, more weapons, help mm-hmm. us keep bombing Yemen." And now it's, they're the ones calling for restraint. It's really, uh, just amazing to me—not amazing in a good way, but it's just like right shows how insane Biden is.
1: Do you think that uh, the Saudis are calling for a ceasefire because the um, the Houthi rebels? Well, Houthi rebels were uh, getting good at blowing up the oil fields. Like they realized like, Hey, if you keep doing this, then this could start putting pressure on us. So like, Hey, let's, let's kind of cool this shit off.
2: Yeah, definitely. They don't want that mm-hmm. to start happening again. And the Saudis have, it seems like just taken kind of a new approach to things. Mm-hmm. You know, they opened up with Iran last year. Right. Uh, in Syria, they reopened up diplomatic ties with Syria and, mm-hmm. It seems like they're just focusing on diplomacy and economic cooperation. So it's just kind of uh, a different, they're trying a new way out, you know, not the, not trying to bomb their problems away.
1: (laughs) All right. Now, do you think uh, China's a little bit of a player in this? Because I know that uh, China was kind of over there and um, as much as people were probably going to say like, Oh, this is China trying to take over the world. Um, If you look at the U S and what they're doing and what China's trying to do, um, I hate to say it, but China's the good guys here. When you look at the two, um, China has been consistently pushing for peace between um the Palestinians and Israel. Um, they were trying to work out deals with the Saudis and Yemenis. Um, they were trying to um, work with peace over in Ukraine. And I think a lot of this is probably because, like, hey, we want the oil. And then also they get a lot of grain from Ukraine. So um, where do you, do you think China plays a role in any of this? Or do you think they're just kind of like there and you know, encouraging this, but not playing like any kind of active role.
2: I think they're kind of just sitting back because, you know, if you're China and you know, you had the U S so focused on building up in Asia, kind of preparing for this war with China in the future. And that's still happening, but with the U S so like getting so sucked into this thing, I think China is kind of, you know, just that not, Maybe happy to see that, just that the U.S. is getting bogged down there, still bogged down in Ukraine in a way. And, um, you know, their position has been neutral when it comes to Israel and Palestine. They have economic ties with Israel that the U.S. isn't happy about and wants Israel to end. And they also, you know, they were the ones that brokered the Saudi-Iran deal. And and Mm -hmm. this is part of their kind of diplomatic clout, that the U.S. is the war maker in the Middle East and they're the peacemaker. And that's how they're going to, that's the role they're going to try to play. They were just saying the other day that there should be a Gaza, you know, an international peace conference to try to figure out how to put an end to this thing. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, and, and China does have, you know, their one overseas military base is in Djibouti on on the Red Sea. So they, uh, Mm. but they haven't gotten involved in this. And I know Chinese ships have gone through the area, no problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, that's what neutrality can get
1: for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing because, like, you would think that uh our founding fathers had the United States as a, a shining city on the hill, but um, now we've become the global empire. And essentially, China gets to be the, city, you know, the shining city on a hill, which is really, really sad because, you know, for all the talk we hear of the Communist Party of China being this awful machine, um, you know, they're doing a lot to boost their own credibility all over the world rather than um kind of drive theirs down like the U.S. has done a lot by, you know, essentially ensuring destruction by arming all these countries that are going to war rather than encouraging peace talks. Um, now, when it comes to the Red Sea, um, I've heard some people say, I think I sent it over in our little group chat about um. It was Donald Trump Jr. on Tim Cass saying that um, a lot of the trade all over the world would be – it would grind to a halt if the Red Sea really got plugged up. Um, Is there truth to that? Do you think they're overstating it, or do you think that's accurate?
2: Well, it wouldn't grind to a halt. I mean, it it would just be more expensive because then they have to go around uh, the Cape of Good Hope in South Mm -hmm. Africa. Sure. And and a lot of ships have already been been doing that. But it is a big deal. I mean, the Suez Canal is a huge strategic shipping lane. It's definitely a big deal if like the whole, you know, thing was closed and no ships could go in. You know, we would really feel that. So that's why I mean that's what the Houthis are using their, you know, the thing, their power that they have there. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting because it's not piracy. It's not like they're And in one case, they did hijack a ship. Um, But it's one thing to stop pirates who are like trying to board ships because you could have security on the boat. But it's another thing when they're just firing missiles and drones like Mm -hmm. that's kind of a tough thing for just a regular commercial ship to defend from. And even if if you have all these Navy ships, you know, they're not going to be able to down every missile or drone. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's definitely a tricky thing. You know, the solution would be to end the, you know, cut off the Israelis and, you know. (laughs) talk to the Houthis but no of course Mm -hmm. we're not going to do that and now that's another thing because I've seen some people say some libertarians say like oh it's you know isn't that the whole isn't that at least one good reason to have a big military to have a world global navy is to protect shipping lanes and to you know attack pirates and you know what about the you know Jefferson went after the Barbary pirates that's a big one that's what DeSantis (laughs) said that that gave the Barbary Wars gave Biden the authorization to bomb the Houthis. But that mm-hmm. just misses the whole context that this is just a creation of all this the U.S. intervention in the region, mm-hmm. everything that's happening right now from what's happening in Gaza to what's happening in Yemen. I mean, and, and the U.S. hasn't helped enforce a blockade, a naval an air, land and sea blockade on Yemen since 2015. And it's been eased, uh, I think, uh, to a pretty good extent since that ceasefire, but it's not, it hasn't been fully lifted. There's still only limited flights out of their main, out of their airport. And they still screen ships going into Hodeda, which is the, the port on the Red Sea. And now I think it's like tightening up again. So mm-hmm. this idea that it's just like, oh, we're just protecting the world's shipping lanes when the U S has just created this mess. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, it, and again, they're targeting, Israeli shipping. So say the U.S. was truly neutral and this was happening anyway. Just work out, just, you know, work out a deal with the Houthis. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Like, again, it's like bombing them. And no, if you know anything about them, it's just going to exacerbate the situation.
1: It's not going to put a stop to it. Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of seems to be a consistent theme with U.S. foreign policy, and I'm sure you know where I'm going, but blowback, essentially, where you just encourage the worst elements of these areas of the world by continuously, you know, essentially harming their civilian population, and then the most radical elements of these governments rise up. I mean, you see this with Hamas, and then not to mention, you know, Israel's support of Hamas, specifically uh, Bibi Netanyahu, and then also, you know, with the uh, Houthis. um, You know, I I can't imagine a world where we weren't bombing them and you know maybe traded with them and raised their standard of living that they would be attacking ships that be gone through the red sea because um you know once again if we treated these countries the way that we should treat them then i like i said i couldn't imagine a world where things wouldn't be okay
2: yeah i mean it is hard to imagine a world where the us isn't involved in all this all these countries and all these conflicts Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean you have to look at this just in that context again the, the blockade on yemen and just in general i mean the u.s has uses economic sanctions to, to on countries when they don't like their government they they put on economic embargoes on on all sorts of countries on on syria uh venezuela cuba of course that's still under the u.s uh, economic embargo mm-hmm. and uh, North Korea I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of countries like that and and besides that just the sanctions like if if th- with Russia right now they're thinking about just taking Russia's money central bank reserves and giving them to Ukraine mm-hmm. it's like how how is that you know if you're you're gonna look at the world from a libertarian perspective how is any of this you know libertarian so mm-hmm. you know it's not like it's the u s is some great you know libertarian utopia that's just protecting the 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 world's <laughs> waters from pirates like that's just not the situation
1: yeah it's, and it's silly to think so as well um so let's get on to the world's leading sponsor of terror iran um i've heard some people yeah <laughs> i've heard some people say that uh if Iran were to get attacked and get, you know, kind of brought into this whole war, then that would mean Russia would come in. Now, I'll give you my read and then obviously you're much more educated on this than me. I really don't think that's the case. I think Russia probably has their hands. I don't want to say completely tied with Ukraine, but they probably don't want to be extended any further than absolutely necessary. And I definitely think Iran isn't as close to Russia as people might want to think. Um, So they probably wouldn't want to intervene for Iran. And also the idea that like Iran is somehow sponsoring every single terrorist organization. I mean, you hear this from every single neocon and every single talking head that it's always Iran's fault, right? Iran has, you know, they're sending people over across the border. They're sponsoring Hamas. They're, you know, sponsoring the Houthis. They're essentially at the goal or at the heart of all this terrorism. So what's your read on that situation between a wider war and Iran um, sponsoring all these terrorists?
2: Yeah, so when it comes to the wider war, I mean Iran and Russia have definitely increased their kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can't see Russia intervening directly f- on behalf of Iran. Um like you said, I think they have too much going on in Ukraine and just in general like I mean Ru- Russia is in Syria, Russia's ally is you know, is allied with Syria, which is allied with Iran. Mm-hmm. But Russia, you know, Israel before October 7th, Israel bombs bombed syria like at you know at a pretty good rate israel is bombing syria all the time
1: they disabled and, the uh what was the aleppo airport um last year didn't they
2: yeah they did that several times now yeah and russia doesn't do anything about that so <laughs> you know i think they they have an arrangement with israel to not go in certain areas but if that's a country mm-hmm. where they have a military presence and it is one of their allies i can't picture them intervening on behalf of iran against israel and the U S because the U S would definitely be in, involved there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think that this could turn into world war three, the situation in the middle East, but I don't really think that even if it does really escalate again, I think kind of the interest of Russia and China is to kind of just sit back and let the U S yeah. deal with this mess. Yeah. Um, I think that would benefit both of them in a way. I mean, it would, you know, globally it would, it would be bad for the economy and stuff, but mm. it would, Benefit them more to stay out of it, I think, than to intervene. Um, and then when it comes to who, what Iran's up to in the region, I mean, so this is another thing. It's kind of a myth about the Houthis that they're an Iranian proxy. Um, mm-hmm. They're a very independent group. Uh, Iran supports them politically, openly, but uh, they didn't just spring up out of nowhere, the Houthis. Sure. You know, I've seen people say that they wouldn't exist without Iran, which is complete nonsense. So they're a specific type of of Shia Muslim. They're Zaydi Shias, and it's a different uh, sect of Shia than the Shia that the Ayatollahs in Iran are the Twelver Shia. So the the Zaydi Shias in the area of North Yemen they've always been there. It used to be an Imamate, which is uh, you know an Islam Islamic rule of Zaydi Shia Imams for a thousand years in in that area of Yemen until the 1960s. So that's the history there. And, and again, this is a Zaidi Shia group. So they're a homegrown movement. They started, uh, I believe, in the 90s. They were called the Believing Youth. And it was kind of a pushback.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for 4 dollars each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
2: Against the Salafi, Sunni, uh, Islam that was spreading
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the Saudi influence and um so that's where, where they came from. And there was wars. They fought the government in Sana'a, the U.S.-backed government, a few times from 2009 and, and a few years after that. There was the Arab Spring in Yemen, and um, that threw out the president, Salah, who actually turned around and allied with the Houthis against the next president, who was Hadi. Who, the, who That's who the Houthis threw out. But anyway, so that's that's their history. They're Yemeni. Uh, they have a you know deep history in the country. And they at the time in those wars in 2009, you know, there's US, there's WikiLeaks cables that say this, that the US doesn't think Iran is arming them. And officials have said that since now when it came to this war with the Saudis, it looks like they did receive they get some other kind of support from Iran. Um, It's not clear exactly what Iran always denies that they arm them, but the Houthis did develop this really good missile and drone capability that's very similar to Iran's missiles and drones, but kind of, they're like a little different. So the theory is, is that Iran helped them, you know, with blueprints and advise their engineers and stuff to build these weapons. And I think that's pretty plausible. Um, and I'm sure, you know, that Iran still denies that they arm them, but I'm, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if, if they do. And the U.S. acts like that's the end of the world. If you arm a group, that's it, you're controlling them. But well, that means the U.S. is controlling Israel, Saudi, you know, all these countries in the region. It's kind of the, the way that they look at that is kind of crazy. Um, but even the Houthis say we don't get armed by Iran. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they say it's all homemade, uh, made domestically, the missiles and drones. Mm-hmm. So, but when it comes to run, you know, they definitely have their allies in the region, the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, uh, Hezbollah, definitely uh, an Iranian ally. Ah, uh, but they they do operate independently. Iran is probably has been encouraging some of the things that they do, but Iran's not like pulling all the strings here. They're definitely yeah. involved in some way, but it's just not as uh, you know
1: black and white as as they try to portray it. Yeah, that's um kind of always been my rated of the situation. I know that uh, the neocons have been kind of targeting and eyeing Iran for years and years and years and years. And, years. and uh, you know, you hear about DeSantis saying on stage during all the debates, you know, the days of placating Iran are over. And then I'm pretty sure even Trump and his victory speech were saying, oh, you wouldn't see this if I were president. Iran was captured and handled. But, um, you know, as we know, under Biden, he's definitely been no dove. When it comes to Iran. So um, what's kind of been going on with the Iran deal and uh, some of that and like their nuclear, I don't want to say proliferation, but uh, basically like their, <laughs> the idea that Iran is building a nuke.
2: Yeah, I mean, so the idea of returning to the Iran deal, I mean, that's totally, you know, off the table now. Right. Um, you know, and there's always kind of the fear mongering about Iran's nuclear program, but there hasn't really been any much new there. Iran is enriching uranium at 60%. At a 60% level, they need 90% to make a bomb. 60% is the highest they ever did. And they actually did that. They took that step in response to, was it, yeah, when Israel bombed one of their nuclear uh, plants in one of their nuclear facilities inside Iran, because Israel has, you know, do, does a lot of covert attacks inside Iran.
1: Okay. And Israel normally doesn't take credit for those attacks, correct?
2: Yeah, not officially, but, you know, there's leaks to the media <laughs> and then they right. they like very strongly hint at it, you know. Mm. So it's very clear when it is Israel. Oh, but one thing Iran did just launch some airstrikes kind of across the region. They bombed Iraq, Syria and Pakistan uh, like within two days. And so the strikes in Iraq, they said targeted ISIS. ISIS took credit for a recent bombing in Iran that killed about 100 people. It was pretty big. Wow. So, in Syria, they, that they probably did that in cooperation with Syria. <coughs> in Iraq, they hit Erbil, which is in the northern Kurdistan region. They said that they mm-hmm. hit a Mossad base, like a secret Israeli intelligence base. Mm-hmm. In response, they didn't say what it was in response for, but Israel did just recently kill an Iranian IRGC officer in Syria, kind of their head guy in Syria. Um the, the local government in Kurdistan says that it wasn't a Mossad base. They say civilians were killed. But a few years ago, Iran launched strikes in the same area in 2022. And U.S. officials actually told the New York Times that they did hit like a Mossad, a facility that was used for training and intelligence ops. So there is an Israeli intel presence in that part of Iraq, but it's not clear if that's what uh, Iran hit. But that's the reason, you know, that's their thinking behind the strike, at least. It's not just like out of nowhere they bombed northern Iraq, although it does suck for Iraq because they just got bombed by the U.S. Like they get bombed when nobody wants to bomb each other directly. Like everybody
1: just bombs Iraq. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's sad. Um, so one thing that I wanted to ask about that um, just kind of slipped my mind a little bit earlier when you were talking is, um, If, let's say, something were to happen in the Red Sea, you had mentioned kind of going over, what is it, uh, like northern Africa. Would anything going on in Somalia potentially have an issue with uh, shipping worldwide if something were to happen in the Red Sea? Um, You mean, like, in Somalia in in what regard? So, like, if um, the Red Sea, let's say, got shut down, right, because there's lots of ships getting bombed there. Um, You were mentioning kind of going through um, the other end, which would be near Somalia, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think that, uh, because of some of the foreign policy actions that have been happening in Somalia, specifically when Biden escalated like a year ago, do you think that could have any potential consequences?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, uh, slow down there. Cause the government so. that the U S backs in Somalia, they, they launched like this big offensive against Al Shabaab. And,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, it seems like they've scaled that back. There hasn't been as many U S uh, airstrikes and stuff, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it could have some sort of impact. Um, you know, the, the, the situation in Somalia for just regular people that live there has, has been pretty bad. So I'm sure shutting down shipping could just make, would make that much worse Um for just, again, just like the civilians that live there. And I know, you know, Somali piracy could come back in a big way. I mean, I guess if the shipping is shut down, they would have nothing to uh hijack, but mm-hmm. there actually was, uh cause it's been a while since there was a Somali, Somali pirates tried to hijack a ship, but apparently the U S like got involved in some encounter with pirates that they said were coming from Somalia. Um, so Mm -hmm. all you know, that is the thing, all this destabilization, you know,
1: creates things like that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so one thing that I'm sure you probably had read up on a little bit and would like to talk about would be the elections in Taiwan. So there's three parties and I always forget one. There's the TPP, um, the common Tang. And then there's one other party. I I can't remember uh, the DPP, the DPP. That's right. Yeah. Um, so what exactly happened on Taiwan? Because that was just three or five days ago, if I remember correctly, um, let everybody know kind of what's going on over there and what you think that might mean for the U S with us China relations.
2: Yeah. So this is something I really wanted to paint it, like really follow closely. But with everything that's been going on, it's been hard for me to follow too closely. But what happened was it was their presidential election and the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. They're the ruling party. They've been in power for the past eight years. And they're all about kind of uh, strengthening ties with the U.S. and the West. They're independence minded. You know, it's very confusing and complicated, but Taiwan has never declared, formally declared independence from China. And if that happens, you know, it's long been, you know, believed that that means war with China if they formally declare independence. Because the Kuomintang, so I don't want to get too ahead of myself here. I'll just mention the election and then I'll give like a little background. So you have the DPP, the ruling party, and their vice president ran uh, as the candidate, William Lai. So he won but they lost the legislature. The Kuomintang won the legislature. So, But it is still going to be about kind of the same, more of the same. And and what has been happening in recent years with the U.S. giving Taiwan more military support, more diplomatic support, things that really, really anger China. It's like just the most sensitive situation for them. So it wasn't kind of a big deal this election because the Kuomintang, so what's interesting about the Kuomintang is that they're the party of Shanghai Kai-shek who lost the civil war in China against Mao, and he fled to Taiwan. And, you know, those were the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, you know, he wasn't supposed to, his plan wasn't to set up a country in Taiwan. His plan was to regroup. Hopefully the U.S. is going to give him more support and then go try to, you know, attack Mao again. But that mm-hmm. that never really happened. Um, but they've always considered themselves China, the Republic of China from Taiwan. So it's just, again, it's confusing. So they consider themselves China, Mm -hmm. China, you know, Beijing, the, the communists, they consider themselves China. And there's like kind of this one China understanding that there is one China, but Taiwan thinks they're China. And then the mainland thinks they're China. So they don't, that's why they haven't declared independence. It's not that they don't act as an independent country in Taiwan. It's just that, that they're, you know, they're China. So it's, again, it's very strange, but the DPP wants independence. They say that they're already a de facto independent country. So I won't, I I don't expect them to declare independence anytime soon. Just again, Mm -hmm. because they know that they know that that probably means war, Uh, Mm -hmm. but they're going to continue to move closer to the U S. And if the China Hawks in the U S still have their way, which I think they will, even with everything else going on, they're going to keep increasing ties with Taiwan. So the Kuomintang came in second. They they took over the legislature. Um and then the uh, TPP, the Taiwan's People's Party, they're they're relatively new. They started in 2019. They they came in third, but they they had a pretty good turnout. It was the first time really in Taiwan's elections that there was like a viable third party. And they yeah, also so, were considered yeah. like more moderate and they they probably would have worked to ease tensions with China. Yeah. Both the the Kuomintang and the TPP Probably would have the Kuomintang definitely, but would have like tried to start talking to China again and really cool things down.
1: Yeah. So weren't the Kuomintang and the uh, TPP, the newer party, um, weren't they supposed to kind of come together to try to beat the DPP? I'm guessing that never happened or like kind of never shook out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So they agreed at one point to make a coalition. And they probably would have won if they did that, but they couldn't agree who was going to be the president, who was going to be uh, vice president, I think. And then I know that the some people in Taiwan accused the U.S. of election interference because they were U.S. officials started poking around and saying, hey, who yeah. who told you guys to make a coalition? Where'd you get that idea? Kind of insinuating uh, that it was China's idea. Uh, yeah. um, so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, so that would have been, you know, for our purposes, us Mm -hmm. non-interventionists it would have probably been better if they if Kuomintang won or if they made that Mm -hmm. coalition and won um so yeah it's just not good and actually the situation with China right now that seems most volatile is in the South China Sea with the Philippines they've been really going crazy over there
1: well yeah haven't there been some uh I know there's always warships sailing through the Taiwan Strait and then obviously through the Philippines as well um I think you had some stories that you told recently, but I haven't been paying quite enough attention to antiwar.com and everything like that as much as I should be. But um, what's kind of been going on with the Philippines? Because I know it was what last year that uh, Kamala Harris was over there and said, we will defend you in the situation mm-hmm. of, you know, if there's any issues with this little contested reef.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing here. So yeah. The Philippines got a new president in 2022, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. His father was like a dictator of the Philippines for a long time. Mm -hmm. But um, he came in kind of vowing to take a harder line against China in the South China Sea Mm -hmm. because China has these claims and they extend to these uh, islands and reefs that the Philippines claim and they have this dispute. Uh, but Duterte, who was the last president, he tried to maintain pretty good ties with China. He threatened to kick the US out at one point. Um, but Marcos came in basically and reversed that and is moving much closer to the US. He signed a deal with the US. So there's more US military bases are going to be in the country. They're doing joint you know, naval patrols and stuff in the South China Sea. So the US is really backing him. And the US you know they've said this for a long time that there's a the US and the Philippines have a mutual defense treaty and the US says that applies to attacks on Philippine ships in the South China Sea. So that means if the Philippines and China ever get into some sort of naval battle or even just, you know, who knows what it could be, the US is saying they're going to intervene to fight China directly. It's it's insane. So this is all emboldened Marcos to really push back against China's claims and there's been um in the past year, just like a lot of these encounters between Chinese and Philippine coast guard vessels or fishing boats. And there's been some collisions and, and like in some cases, China fired water cannons and it's just like a really volatile situation. And for some reason, you know, we're, we're, uh, promising war over it. Um, which is just, it just doesn't make much sense to me, but, uh, it is something you know marcos is very determined they keep saying they're going to try to militarize these islands now yeah. and build everything up and yeah it's just kind of escalating over there
1: mm-hmm. okay so to pivot back to uh taiwan for a second um do you think the legislature going over to the common tang do you think that's going to be more i don't know if this could be a good comparison but basically kind of like what we have right now in the us where you have like a republican controlled house with a you know, Democrat president, or do you think it's a little bit more nuanced than that? Because what we see right now is a little bit more of like stalemate where like the Republicans have a lot of balls. So they're kind of making sure that a lot of the stuff that Biden wants to do doesn't always get passed. Do you think it's a situation like that? Or like I said, do you think it's a little bit more nuanced?
2: Yeah, I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know enough about kind of the internal politics sure. to know much, you know, how that's going to go. Um but I think when it comes to the the DPP, the, what they want to do with the U.S., I mean, I don't think there's really much that they need in terms of like passing new laws. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just looking for the U.S. basically to give them things and and recognize <laughs> them in different areas. So sure. And military training. Like, I I don't think they're going to need to pass new legislation for that. So mm-hmm. it might not really affect that too much unless there's like real radical
1: things that they want to do. Mm hmm. So I'm going to give you a pretty broad question now, because I know you don't get to talk much about the presidential candidates. Um, What do you make of the comments that none of this would be happening under Trump? I mean, it's just impossible to to know.
2: And like everybody points to the Abraham Accords that he signed in the Middle East. But those kind of led to this attack, that Hamas attack on October 7th. Netanyahu thought he could ignore the Palestinians and, and normalize with the Arab countries and just kind of push off this huge, uh, you know, problem of, of the Gaza strip of the West bank and, and expand more settlements in the West bank, which, you know, that was what the Trump administration supported, uh, was a lot of settlement expansion. They, they declared that the, the Israeli settlements are not illegal, you know, pretty big changes. Um, so yeah, kind of, but, you know, again, it's just hard to know what would have happened. I, I mean, there's, There's no way to say that if Hamas was planning this attack and Trump was president, I mean, it's not going to stop Hamas. Um, The situation with Russia and Ukraine, I mean, it's hard to imagine, again, how that would have gone with Trump. I think he might have been better at diplomacy when the the lead up, the build up was happening. I think he Uh could. He was, you know unpredictable enough that he might've just been like, all right, NATO's off the table for Ukraine. You know, I could have seen him doing something like that, but then they probably would have impeached him for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And I don't know how he would ha- you know, so for because Trump was arguably, I mean, now with Biden, you can't really say this, I guess, you know, one of the most pro Israel presidents of all time.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so I would assume that he would be giving Israel everything they want in this. And, mm-hmm. They probably wouldn't be paying lip service to the idea of you know humanitarian aid and stuff. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine anybody being worse than Biden right now. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um I definitely think uh Trump was a little bit more of a diplomat than Biden, where Biden just seems to have zero interest in talking to anybody. And sometimes I almost think it's because like the I hate to say the platitude of like the people who handle him, but probably because they realize like he's probably not going to do that good when it comes to a face to face conversation. So it's probably best if we just kind of keep him off to the side, you know, kind (laughs) of lampshade him to whatever he's going to do. What are your thoughts on Vivek dropping out and endorsing Trump? And what do you think of Vivek's campaign and some of the messaging that was coming out specifically when it came to foreign policy? I know we touched on this a little bit last time, but uh, just if you change your mind at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I stopped paying attention for the last like couple weeks or months or whatever. And, you know, Vivek, some things he would say I would really like, but then he would say the opposite thing when he would like it, kind of depended on whoever he was talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point he said, Oh, we don't need to defend Taiwan. We just need, you know, semiconductor independence and we can forget about them. And then the next day yeah. he's like, No, we have to commit to defending Taiwan. And he, you know, that was basically his position was to end yeah. strategic ambiguity and, and say that we'll go to war with China strategic over Taiwan. Clarity, yeah. Yeah. And that's just, you know, he, he says that in the name of preventing world war three, but you know, that's mm-hmm. the, that's how you get world war three. So <laughs> I was just yeah. annoyed by kind of his, his lack of like consistency when it, when it comes to foreign policy stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and then his whole thing with Ukraine and Russia, like, uh he's like oh this is my plan to end the war in ukraine i'm gonna get putin to sever his military alliance with china which they first of all they don't really have a formal military alliance he would point to this friendship treaty that they that they signed so he's basically asking them to give up all this trade but you know putin's not gonna do that it's just not a realistic plan that he had there but he acted like it was oh nobody else is taught nobody else is as smart as me when it comes to this issue but he's really not that smart And so that stuff just kind of annoyed me. I know he said a lot of good things, but I kind of just couldn't get past that stuff. And to me, his campaign just seemed like a PR uh, campaign for himself. And um, but and now people are hopeful that he's going to push Trump, make Trump better on issues. But I don't know. I don't really have much uh, hope for that. So I saw a clip recently where he was talking about January 6th back when it happened and he said it like made him cry or something. So it showed, you know, he was just a completely different person like a couple a few years ago. So I I just never like trusted him, but I know again that you know he's good on Assange. He says pardon Assange on day one. He's saying he's going to you know pressure Trump to do that. So you know, hopefully Mm -hmm. he has some good influence. But I just never really thought he was genuine. I don't know, maybe I'm too like, and I don't feel like I'm being like a purist about him either, because it. Because I, I tolerate, I can tolerate a lot of things from politicians, but there's something about him that bugged me.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair That's enough. The
2: uh, I think. I, don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, kind of like we were talking about Rand Paul in the beginning, but uh, Vivek has flip-flopped on a lot of issues, and yeah. the China and Mexico stuff in particular were like the two deal breakers for me. And I know a lot of people are swooning over him, but like. Just when he made it a point at one of the last debates to say, like, we need to declare strategic clarity with Taiwan to prevent World War Three. I'm like, well, you realize like that almost guarantees World War Three, just like you said, um, if you tell China that, hey, we're going to officially recognize Taiwan and we're going to guarantee their defense like <laughs> that, that is immediately guaranteed. China goes for Taiwan. Yeah. I mean, um, people
2: were yeah, trying to say he was like the anti-war candidate on the stage right. of that debate, but he
1: also said he would go to war with China. Like, yeah. I mean, it, he literally carried the establishment position. It was like a harder line
2: than DeSantis took, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, and like, this is the funny part is that, um, and I'm sure you see this too, but this shit just drives me nuts when people talk about it. They're like, Oh, what do you mean? It's the establishment position to say that we'll defend Taiwan and go to war with China. I'm like, are, are you like completely ignoring everything that Biden says and everything that that he does i understand you could probably ignore what he says but if you look at what what has been done over the last you know three four years now you can't say that he's been some yeah you know, the beijing biden line right yeah, where yeah. he's owned by china like no he's done everything he can to stick it right in their face and tell him like look you fuck around you'll find out
2: yeah yeah uh, biden said it a few times and now so after this election in taiwan biden came out and said we don't support taiwan independence mm. um and the China and the U.S. have been kind of talking a little more uh, at like the military level lately. So hopefully there's some easing of tensions going on. But at the same time, yeah. the U.S. not, you know, that's official U.S. policy on paper is that they don't support Taiwan independence. So he could have just been reiterating that after the election and it might not really have meant that much. But hopefully uh, things cool are cooling down a bit between the U.S. and China. But. But yeah, well, yeah, so Vivek, I mean, um, I thought he would at least go through to New Hampshire.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, he kind of did like an RFK style seppuku is at least what I'm calling it. Basically, Trump had called him out and hurt his feelings once, and he just completely tanked his campaign from there. Kind of yeah. like when our RFK got called an anti-Semite, and then he just yeah, yeah. <laughs> drove it right into the ground. So uh, maybe we'll get your uh, thoughts on RFK as well. Um, I know Connor Freeman and I had kind of, we were singing this praises, and literally like the day after I put out the podcast, him and I just saying, man, it's so cool to see RFK, you know actually anti-war saying good stuff about china and all this stuff literally the next day he says oh we have to defend israel and just did this whole just you know lakudnik celebration it was it's very very strange so yeah what's your thoughts on rfk and kind of how his campaign is shook out
2: yeah i mean it's really incredible how bad he is on (laughs) israel like it's not he's like as bad as maybe even worse than like DeSantis and like Nikki Haley, like he's as bad as them. That's yeah. like he's horrific on the issue. He did you see that interview he did on uh, Breaking Points where he, he no. said that the Palestinians were like the most pampered people in the history of the world? <laughs> I heard that, that line into yeah. you know foreign aid or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of making saying these most ridiculous claims about the situation and you know, deflecting in such like a pathetic, weaselly way. He was like, oh, well, did you know? Because they asked him about the blockade on Gaza. And he's like, oh, did you know that we put a blockade on Iraq in the 1990s? It's like, mm-hmm. and he said, so why do you only talk about it when the Jews do it? And they were, it was Crystal Ball and what's his name? Sagar and Jetty, yeah. And they, they were both like, what? Like we, you know, that's bad too. Like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about, man? <laughs> like that, the, you know, it's a, immediately to imply that you're anti-Semitic. And and it's just everything that he says he's against, everything that he says he claims that he's for when it comes to being like the peace candidate, it just goes all goes out the window when it comes to Israel. It's really
1: incredible. It's really something. Yeah, well, I remember he did a space, and this is kind of where Connor and I got really excited, is that he was saying, oh, um, China's an economic competitor, and we should win that competition. And then now my understanding is that he's basically saying China's going to blackmail the world. I'm like, how did you do that? Has he
2: been saying things like that?
1: I I guess so. And, I mean, I was mainly hopeful – that we would have somebody up there to just say like hey why don't we stop this insanity with china because i know most of our main frustration is like this is the most insane policy out of all of them and it's the one that's being talked about the least mm-hmm. and to have rfk up there at least at one point saying that we shouldn't go to war with china i mean that's like you know thank god at least somebody's saying it but uh, now that he's saying just crazy stuff about china he sounds you know almost identical to some of the boomer right-wingers <laughs> um you know, it's it's just sad to see his campaign just take a total nosedive.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, I don't know. I just haven't been paying attention to him lately. And it does seem like he's lost a lot of support because of this whole Israel Gaza thing. I mean, the way things are looking, it looks like Trump is just going to blow everybody out of the water. Mm.
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, okay, well, maybe one thing that will uh, change your mind on that. What do you think? <laughs> I know you and I are kind of on the same page when it comes to this, but I don't know if you're as certain as I am. Uh, who do you think is his VP pick? Well, I
2: I know we've <laughs> talked about this, but I think it's the most Trump thing that he could do is pick Nikki Haley. You know, Trump has always disappointed. Yeah. You know, when you think he's going to do something good, he he mm-hmm. disappoints. Um. And it does seem like a way he can kind of get back in the establishment's good graces, be like, all right, we're not going to try to, you know, do a coup against you. If you pick Nikki Haley and you put these people in your cabinet, I could see him just saying, all right, because he doesn't care. He just wants to be back in. He just wants everybody to like him and he wants to be on top again. That's really what this is all about. I mean, he did that interview with Tucker. It was one. there was one of the debates. And Tucker asked him about the CIA, and he's like, "Oh, there's a lot of good people in the CIA." And he's like, yeah. "Okay." And he asked him about Jeffrey Epstein, and he's like, "Oh yeah, he pr- probably killed himself. Very sad." It's like <laughs> this is your deep state fuck, you know, warrior. And it's like, you know, and the vaccine COVID stuff, and and he's still proud of that, and you know, so uh, you know, I, I would, I hope I'm wrong. Um, a- actually, so it does seem like there's a lot of pushback on that idea from within his campaign so okay. hopefully that does something because yeah. you know but again i, I won't be surprised do you, you think do you agree that it's probably going to be Haley?
1: <laughs> i'm i'm i would say i'm probably about 75 sure it's going to be Haley. um steve bannon was a strategist for years and steve bannon said he's picking a woman um and i think that the culture is so currently that uh you can't really afford to not have a woman on the ticket anymore being that women are doing a lot of the voting now um, So I think that he's going to want that graces. Carrie Lake is running to be, what is it, Senator or Congresswoman or something out in Arizona, and I think she's very unlikable. Um, So I think if he picks her, that's suicide. I think if he picks Nome, I think Nome would be a good idea because she's attractive. You know, she did well during the COVID lockdown, so that may balance mm-hmm. out a little bit more of his negatives. But um i think nikki haley being the second choice and he hasn't really gone after her that much
2: and um i mean as far as i've seen she hasn't really gone after him either like i think she she, i think she said some stuff
1: yeah she said she wouldn't have him as vp but everybody knows that she's not winning. I mean, unless they really, like, I think if they prop up Haley as the next president, then I think we all know that, you know, the games, (laughs) you know, game over, you know, let's go home. But um, I I don't think that they're ready to do that. I really don't. I I know people say that about 2020, but I don't think they would do that with Nikki Haley. I I just think it would be taking the mask too far
2: off. Yeah, yeah. But if they could get her in, you know, in some way. Uh, it does sound like, uh, from what I've heard, she has a much better shot in New Hampshire of doing better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any high hopes.
1: Mm-hmm. No, neither do I. I, I think it's going to be, uh, Trump and Haley 2024 versus, uh, Biden and Harris. Uh, I, I know everybody wants to say Newsom and, uh, Michelle Obama, but both of them have pretty much said, yeah, we're not running. And yeah, now, I mean, at this I, point, I,
2: yeah, they haven't, yeah. you know, it's still Biden. So
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I heard Bill O'Reilly saying that it's going to be Newsom or Michelle Obama. So I'm like, okay, if, if Billy O'Reilly saying it, we could probably count on it being bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right, Dave, well, we've been going for about an hour now. Um, you've been very gracious with your time. I think it's your fourth appearance on here. So, um, oh, nice. I greatly appreciate everything you do. Um, you're a uh, I don't want to say a hidden gem at this point. Cause you've done quite a few rounds on some awesome shows. So hopefully um you get back up there again. Uh Feel free to tell everybody where they can find you and support your work.
2: Yeah. All my writings at antiwar.com. warcom uh, You can follow me on Twitter at the camp, Dave, you can listen to my show. It's a daily podcast and YouTube show called anti-war news with Dave, the camp, where I go over all the news stories that I write every day.
1: Cool. Cool. All right. Well, uh, uh, no fun drivers or anything like that? I'm sure there's probably one coming up soon.
2: No, we, uh, we finished one recently. We actually did really good, um, which was good good because the last one was tough. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're good for now. But people could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate if they uh, they want to help us out.
1: All right. Hell yeah. Well, uh, everybody, make sure you go listen to Dave's stuff. Um, that's why I've learned probably now a majority of stuff I know about foreign policy. And uh, until next time, everybody take care.